Welcome to Ferment Radio, a podcast series on bacterial and social fermentation. Fermentation can incite social actions, spark creativity and bring surprising new tastes to our lives. My name is Aga Pokrivka and I invite you to join us in a conversation on living interconnectivities. From macro to micro, from societal to cellular and from global to personal. For centuries, fermentation has had an important role in the evolution of agriculture. But the idea that fermentation can be treated as a paradigm for understanding place-based change is one step ahead. This episode explores how land use and management is related to the production and consumption of fermented beverages, a research area Colleen Miles calls fermented landscapes. That term functions as a metaphor for understanding landscape transformation and the co-evolution of humans, agriculture and microbes. But it is also a symbolic representation of the post-Pasteurian movement, which uses fermentation as a way to connect locality, nutrition and oppose standardization. Today, together with Colleen Miles, associate professor at Texas State University, rural geographer and political ecologist, I would like to invite you to zoom out, look for the sweet spot where micro and macro meets, and think how fermentation is intertwined with placemaking. Okay, yeah. So I'm Colleen Miles. I'm at Texas State University. I'm an associate professor. So my job is uh, teaching and learning and writing and researching. And uh, the topics that I have been most focused on recently relate to fermentation and landscape change and placemaking. The question I really wanted to ask you since I, I've heard about your research, how are landscape change and fermentation related? Yeah, so uh, I looked over your uh, previous uh, recordings a few times just to kind of get a sense of what you've been talking about. And it does seem like you're much more, uh, so far at least, have been focused on that really like microbial, micro side of things. And I would say having me on your show is like a, <laughs> like we're going to zoom out very far <laughs> to be looking at the very big picture of how uh fermentation taken broadly as both a metaphor and as a literal process can influence landscapes. And so that's a great question. What what the heck is a landscape and why and how would fermentation be related to it? So as you know, I have a whole book on this topic uh, that came out in 2020. It's an edited book. And so I wrote some of the things in the book, but I also recruited a number of people who are, you know, better and smarter than me to, to write about this as well. And so I, of course, encourage you and anyone else to read the book because it's, I think, very interesting and fun. But the sort of nuts and bolts of it, the, the getting down to the bottom of it is that if you think about landscapes as something that are environments, as well as things that are cultures. So this is like going back to like core kind of concepts in geography around what a landscape is. And so if you think about a place as being something that exists physically in space as an environment and also something that is created and recreated through our own interactions with it. So uh, so I think of landscapes in that way, in that broad way. And fermentation, as I mentioned or alluded to, is that 
this idea of it being a kind of um, volatile, catalytic transformation that occurs through the mixing of one kind of element with another. And so for me, uh, this idea was sparked due to my dissertation research. I did my dissertation research in the Sierra Nevada foothills of California, which uh, you know is on the west coast of California, but the Sierra Nevada foothills are on the eastern part of California. But uh, so like close to the coast, relatively speaking, but not coastal <laughs> exactly. Um, but this beautiful mountain range that that goes up from the valley floor in California. And so I was doing this comparative case study of three different instances of land uh, use change in the Sierra Nevada foothills. And one of them was uh, like the non-change case where it had been used as ranching ever since the gold rush. That area is most famous for the gold rush. Uh, so this was the case that nothing had changed, which of course is not really true. Land management is an active <laughs> ongoing process. Uh, but people think of it as having just stayed the same. And then the other one was a ranch that had been turned into a golf course, which was uh, very um, notable to a lot of people because it seemed like a drastic change in land use uh, and people were not necessarily in favor of it as it was occurring. But the third one was an instance of a ranch that had become a vineyard and a winery. And this was seen as a positive uh, community building, economic development change in the community. And so many of the you know, locals were in favor of this change that had happened, even though it was just as drastic of a change as, say, the golf course. Uh, but people just saw it differently. And so I wrote my whole dissertation about people's perceptions of places and rural character and identities and how that's related to actual environments and how they manage them. Uh, and so the winery was a part of this, but it wasn't the whole conversation. And so when I became a, a faculty member at Texas State, uh, you know, as a new faculty member, you kind of have to come up with new things <laughs> that you're doing and you have to do that kind of quickly. And it's very stressful. Um, but so thankfully, I had this kind of nugget uh, not to, you know, <laughs> lean too heavily on the gold rush metaphor, but I had this nugget <laughs> of something that I had seen in my dissertation related to wine or sort of fermentation or like this different kind of product, this agricultural product that could come out of a landscape and change the way people think about that land. And so I decided to just, you know, dive into that. And I went back again um, as a faculty member and did a more specific focused uh, study about wine in particular in the Sierra Nevada foothills, uh, you know, stemming from that little nugget uh, from the dissertation. And uh, so that basically launched the rest of like all the stuff I've been doing for all these years. I've been at Texas State for eight years now. And so I would say basically from then I started, you know, germinating on this idea of what does it mean? Landscape change is happening, right? I mean, the only, the only thing that's, what if what's that saying? <laughs> the only thing that uh, stays the same is change itself or whatever that uh, phrase is. And so landscapes are changing all the time, but how and why are they changing and what are driving those changes? I became very curious about this idea of fermentation itself. And so as you'll know, as somebody who is uh, very much interested in processes of fermentation, there are these tiny microbial actors that are interacting with us in uh very intimate ways and that are, you know, acting as co-producers of the of our bodies and of the places we live in and of the atmosphere and all these kinds of things that a lot of people don't think about because it's invisible to us largely. And for me, I've been really enjoying this process of opening up my own perceptions around 
what it means to exist in this place, in this world, and what it means to exist as a human in this body. Uh, that's been a recent kind of uh, obsession of mine, let's say. Um, but back to the landscape issue, if you think about uh, humans, for better or for worse, humans have been engaged in a, let's say, aggressive <laughs> process of landscape transformation. And so the idea that humans are changing landscapes is like, yeah, of course. I mean, that's that's a thing that's happening. But the the motivations for why and how we change things are a little bit more nuanced. That's what geographers bread and butter is, right? This is why we do the work that we do. But how do we then interact with all these other characters? Right. The big, you know, megafauna and flora that we see are uh, clear kind of participants in management decisions. But what about these smaller actors? And so how does fermentation as, uh, affect landscape change? I would say, how could it not affect landscape change? Uh, one particular example that you might give is that, you know, you take um, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, right? This is a very common yeast that's used in the production of beer and wine and bread. And it's a very pervasive or prevalent kind of um, actor in our in our network. And the humans have like cultivated entire landscapes toward producing grain, for example, that will then be fed to this entity that will then produce a certain kind of outcome that will produce gallons and gallons and gallons of beer that we will enjoy. But if you think about the amount of uh, grain production, hop production, how much water is used, like all of those environmental resources are closely interlinked with our relationship to that particular form of yeast. Does that make sense? So there's this like really specific land management agricultural relationship that we have with certain kinds of microbes that is like kind of on the one hand, like obvious, but on the other hand is not specifically thought about that much. So that's been the kind of digging that I've been doing. And in the book, that's like sort of where I've been at more recently, but with the book in particular, the Fermented Landscapes book, what we were trying to understand, what I sort of proposed to my co-authors was let's dig in a little bit and see what we can find, thinking about what does the what can fermentation literally tell us? Like if we think about fermentation as a literal like transformational process, material transformation process. And then also what can we think about fermentation as a metaphor in terms of this idea of like volatile changes that can be radical or slow or some kind of mix and what kinds of different actors and agents are involved to enact these different kinds of changes. How I understood your concept of, of uh, fermented landscapes is that we are talking here about the landscapes which are particularly related to um, like uh, industries which are changing the landscape, like a fermentation industries, like vineyard, for example. It's a typical fermentation industry, right? But now when you were talking about your work, I realized that actually any landscape is fermented. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> While working on, on fermented landscapes, did you mean this broader definition that actually any landscape change can be fermented? Or you meant particularly like a fermentation related industries changing the landscape? Yes, I think those were part of part of it from the beginning. But even myself, you know, sometimes you get you get ideas for things and then 
you know, you learn about them. I mean, this is one of the beauties of having the job that I have is that I can ask questions like, hmm, is fermentation related to landscape change? And I get to learn things <laughs> along the way. So that's fantastic. So I do think that was part of my original idea. But I think one of the benefits of having had the opportunity to explore this idea and to talk with a number of other smart people about it and to think about it and write about it is that my own understanding of it has deepened which is wonderful, right? I mean, that's great. That's why I love doing the work that I do. Um, but I think that for me personally, as I've delved into the, like I was describing those kind of like scalar worlds <laughs> that we have going on on planet Earth, uh, the the inevitability of fermentation influencing landscape change has just become more and more clear to me that we can talk about purposeful landscape change and how maybe certain industries or certain actors are driving what is grown when, where, and why. Sure, that's certainly interesting. And there can be some great and important questions to ask around, you know, sustainability or equity or justice or things like this related to those kinds of changes. But on top of that, there's this, like I said, this kind of substrate or invisible layer of how microbes are impacting and influencing and working together with all of us all the time as well as plants and animals and soil and water and all those things. So in some sense, it's like, it's just another example of the human, um, the human artifice or something like our own kind of sense of importance or superiority that like, yes, we are important and we are making changes upon the landscape. But if you really think about it, there are many other actors, millions and millions and millions of them also doing that every day. Uh, so we're not alone in that endeavor, but of course we, we're kind of the the thinkers, the thinkers and the writers of, of the planet. So we get to, we get to pontificate about it, I guess. I wonder if it would be possible for you to describe how fermented la landscape might look like. Is it something which we can kind of uh, imagine here? Yeah, on this podcast. So I've been thinking about ways that fermented landscapes kind of express themselves or different like forms of fermented landscapes. Uh, more recently, in relation to a different project I'm working on, where I'm thinking about taste makers as placemakers, uh, how taste makes place, which is sort of turning the kind of obvious uh, study, uh, the, the concept in wine called terroir, where place makes taste, like the soil and water and geomorphology and topography of places influences the way that grapes are produced and thus how they taste and thus how wine is. So I'm trying to turn that on its head and think about how taste is making place, which is, a, as you can probably imagine, kind of a direct... <laughs> offshoot of this fermented landscapes work. So I've been thinking about actual places a lot lately and how we might see them as fermented landscapes. And, you know, so I used the example of the, <clears throat> excuse me, Sierra Nevada foothills in California just a, a few minutes ago, but there are many of these, right? I mean, take basically any wine landscape. We can, we can deconstruct this for you, but uh, so, or take a place that I like to think of unlikely wine places, for example, like I, I have a paper about Arizona wine, for example, or a place that's now a very well-established wine growing place that did not used to be at all is Australia. So let's take Australia for an example. So this is a place that 100% was not having any grapes. <laughs> there were no local varieties of plants that grew anything even remotely resembling a grape. But humans brought grapes there 
and they brought the process of winemaking there and they brought with them certain species of microbes <laughs> and yeast to like create wine. And now there's a whole different ecosystem happening there around wine grape growing. And that place, that economy, there's an entire bold and vivid and um, vibrant economy around wine in Australia. There's a whole bold and vivid and vibrant culture around wine in Australia. There's a whole bold and vivid and vibrant microbial community happening around wine there. Do you see there's like these sort of layers of uh, elements that are directly, directly related to this particular kind of fermentation that's being done there. So that's just like I said, one, we could we could talk about it more like I'm fascinated right now with this idea of kind of the colonial element of wine <laughs> that places like Australia or say South Africa or something like this, that wine grapes were imported there hundreds of years ago in service of colonial ends. And, you know, there's lots of people that have said many things about the colonial project and how negative it's been for all kinds of reasons. So we don't need to rehash those ideas here. But to me, the generative side of that is so fascinating right now. Like there are these entire communities of plants and animals and people that simply would not have existed <laughs> in those places were it not for the colonial project. Uh, so I haven't, I haven't sorted out my, my full thinking about that yet. You'll have to, you'll have to have me come back in a, in a couple of years and I can <laughs> give you a better answer about that. Um, but so I think to the point of your question of what does a fermented landscape look like? So take another famous place for wine, Napa in California. This is a place that is a new world location of wine. There are all these normative ideas around. I'm just talking about wine right now as an example. We could look at any other ferment that you wanted to as well. Um, and I do want to put a pin in talking about kombucha because I thought of it before and I want to bring it back. But for now, we'll talk about wine. Uh, so Napa, this is a new world wine location that had to kind of climb its way up to the ladder because old world wine producers, say in France and Italy, for example, and Spain, were like, you can't just like grow good wine there. We're the experts at this. And Napa has demonstrated an ability to grow grapes and craft wine and sell wine and create a, a landscape that that lures people in for the production and consumption of wine, just like those old world, you know, precursors. Uh, so that's that's a classic fermented landscape. The the landscape, if you've been, I don't know if you've been to Napa, but if you ever go there, it's this beautiful, I mean, literally like sculpted landscape. There's these beautiful hills. Uh, the 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 visitor, a visitor there sort of walks into this landscape that's been made for them to consume and enjoy. And I don't just mean like drink the wine. They want you to consume the wine also, but they want you to drink in this landscape. It's part of the whole experience of being there. And so much about wine is that affective experience. If you look into the actual um, science around taste, like literal sensory taste, it's so much to do with how your brain is interpreting what's been what's happening in your in your mouth or in your nose, that those experiences really and truly matter in terms of how good or bad <laughs> the wine tastes. And again, this can be anything, not just wine. I'm just talking about wine right now. I Now I got hooked with this wine. You know? <laughs> and I just, um, when you mentioned wine, I, I had exactly the thought you, you, you 
you told us about, about this kind of a co colonial connotations of uh, wine. But it also made me wonder how much thinking along the lines of a fermented landscapes, for example, wine yard in California and then in South Africa and then in somewhere in Australia, um, how much do they differ? And is it something you could tell us more about? Is this landscape fermented differently in a way? Like, for example, even talking about the microbial part, do you have a knowledge if if the um, if the microorganisms which are uh, participating in in making this uh, this wine yards happen are they differing or they are still kind of uh, uh, you know coming from some lineage which was brought from Europe and so on? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'm not sure if I have the full. You know, I don't know if my brain is full with enough of that to to get to the truly like the microorganism level in terms of like the diversity of those microorganisms. But my, my understanding is that evolution is like constantly occurring. And so, and there's, you know, billions of, of microbes around. So it's, it does, it would not surprise me if you did sampling of the microbial communities in those places that they would be, you know, notably different from each other, but still, but still operating in a similar enough way that they're getting the process of fermentation done, if that makes sense. I, that's just a speculation. I'm, I'm not a, a you know, um, microbiologist or something like that to be able to answer that specifically. But it's an interesting uh, question. But but something that I that I will say, you're saying, are these fermented landscapes comparable or what are sort of some differences or similarities among them maybe is another way of asking uh, the question that you've asked. And I would say certainly we've been talking about microorganisms, for example, or yeast or something, but there's also the plants themselves, which is another thing that I think humans are just in general, like not very good at thinking about <laughs> how plants are also, uh, you know, beings, <laughs> living beings on this, on this planet. And, uh, Something that I've been finding really interesting hearing, so I've been doing an ethnography of tastemakers now, nowadays, and so I've been listening to a lot of people that are very much uh, inundated in the wine community in a variety of ways, and it's so fascinating to hear people from these different worldviews think and talk about commonplace items like plants, for example. And so different species or uh, let's not say species different varieties of wine grapes there are many different varieties of wine grapes and there has been research done about how one specific variety of grapes say pinot noir or something like that it'll get planted transplanted in various places and it'll grow there for some amount of time you know 50 100 200 300 years 500 years you know some some wine grapes have been growing in certain places for very long periods of time uh, and they'll notice that the plants evolve in place, like the actual genetic makeup of the particular plants in one specific location will be different than elsewhere. And that's because they're like modifying and evolving and adapting to the specific environmental context. And so this question of like, where is Pinot Noir grown? You could, you know, make a map of the globe and show where Pinot Noir is grown, but uh, somebody who wanted to do like a genetic analysis of those plants could find out some very interesting and distinct variations among them that could be explained, for example, by their environmental context. But it's not just that, Aga. <laughs> There's more because the people are manipulating those plants also. 
and I don't mean manipulate in a bad way. I just mean like the whole point of agricultural production is to harvest what you want from those plants and to manage those plants in a particular way so that you get what you want out of them. And so I, this is, like I said, still speculation. And I'm basing this off of an ethnography of humans, not on like actual plant uh, physiology or something like this. But it would not surprise me also if it, they call them agricultural practices, they're cultural practices that go into the management of these plants, that those modifications and adaptations and evolutions are also related to when and how the plants are pruned and when they're um, trimmed for the year to go into for the cold season so they don't die off, they get trimmed really far back onto just their uh, their main um, trunk so that their branches don't just die in the winter. I mean, they'll die anyway, but they try to do it in a purposeful way. So it wouldn't surprise me if the plants are changing their kind of, <laughs> not their basic functions, but the timing of when they do different things, when they're blooming and, and, uh, and when they're growing their fruit and things like that related to not just environmental factors, but also cultural factors. So I've gotten myself way down a track here on a tangent, but I think the main point was, can you see differences? So I think we could certainly see differences on a like genetic or cellular level related to the actual microorganisms involved, as well as the plants themselves. And certainly the people in these places are different from each other as well. And how and when you drink different kinds of wine or why you grow wine. Do you even drink wine in the place that it's produced or is most of it exported? Wine has become a much more broadly consumed product, but for many, many years, back to that colonial uh, <laughs> colonial intent is that wine grapes were grown certain places, but the wine was consumed elsewhere. But wine is consumed all over the world now very uh very widely. And so that's maybe less of an issue. I don't know. I haven't gotten that far into my, <laughs> into my research. Um, but I was going to say that uh, uh, one more little thing about that is that to me, it's interesting why certain varietals were selected to be planted. Like one, a person like me <laughs> who might be like, wow, I'm really interested in how certain kinds of environments and places vary. I'd want to find the grape that grows the best in this particular place. And if I think that microbes are important and yeast is important and yeast has its own agency and desires, I might be like, what yeast communities are here? What environmental context is here? What grapes would like really thrive the best to create this diverse, interactive, collaborative environment? just because I'm a nerd. And if anything could be, that would probably be what I would do. But the thing is, this is all part of an economic process too, right? People want to grow those grapes <laughs> so that they can turn them into expensive wine and sell it. And so certain kinds of varietals or grapes are grown in, in places because that's what was popular at the time, or that's what was grown in the place where those immigrants came from, or, you know, whatever, or, you know, it's the grape does well enough, and they can grow enough of it that they can sell enough of it that it makes the whole uh, investment worthwhile. It's quite, a, it's quite costly to put in vineyards. Uh, they take a lot of capital outlay at the beginning. And so to me, I'm like, super nerdy about it. I'm like, Oh, wow, like, what would be like the ideal grape for this place? Like, to foster a sustainable, diverse community, you know, you know, just call me a hippie or I don't know what to call me, but, but if that was the ideal world, I would do it. But that's like, that's not the only thing that people are worried about, if that makes sense. And so which grapes are grown where, and do they vary? How, how might fermented landscapes in different places vary? It could be the kinds of plants, the kind of cult cultural practices that are there, the actual like microbial communities that are there. Yeah. 
I wonder, um, like zooming out and thinking about this concept of fermented landscapes, um, does it always mean something positive or is rather uh, like a neutral notion? Yeah. Um, because how do you describe about it? It sounds like, oh, great, oh, the vine <laughs> is growing, you know, uh, um, I probably, you know, I, I feel that it's a positive notion. Um, but what do you think about it? Yeah, so there's a lot to be said about about that. The chap there's actually a chapter in the book about it as well, where we call um, it, the chapter is called "Is Booze a Public Good?" <laughs> um, where we pick apart this idea of like how, when, when uh, cultural and landscape change, environmental and cultural change, specifically, you know, what that I'm, we're calling landscape change, uh, is is positive or negative for different kinds of communities, and certainly. For the producers, you know, that are getting, you know, the growing the things that they need and producing the product that they want and getting the money they want from it. And the consumers who are enjoying the wine or the beer or the whatever, like certainly those are positive outcomes. But if you're going to if you're going to agree that there is such a thing as a fermented landscape, right, that uh, it shifts like there's some kind of fundamental transformational shift going on in a particular place not everyone is going to necessarily appreciate those changes. So like, for example, in the craft beer literature, there's a lot of stuff you could go read about gentrification and craft beer and how urban areas have been changed by the production of beer. And beer is really interesting because unlike wine that we were talking about that has this really direct like place-based connotation there are places that are known for wine that don't actually grow the grapes there but those are much less common than places that you expect to see the grapes and the wineries and the people going out and consuming that landscape all in one place beer is a bit different because it's often produced in more urban locations and those inputs those agricultural inputs are brought into the city and then turned into beer so it's like there's already this transformation that occurs that something that's not a local product becomes a local product <laughs> when you turn uh, grain and hops and water and yeast into beer. It's suddenly a local product, even though those things may have come from far away. And often with hops, for example, this is a this is a particular component of beer that's hard to grow in a lot of places. So it's almost always imported from elsewhere. Um, so I find that that process fascinating that these material transformations work in different ways and how we conceive of them are different. Uh, but in any case, back to the point, there's been a lot said about uh, how breweries have changed urban landscapes. And to some of that's great. You know, the line between uh, redevelopment and gentrification is a thin one. <laughs> some people are like, yes, home values are up. Yes, we have increased infrastructure. Yes, we have more policing. Yes, we have an influx of higher income people. Yes, we have, you know, more parks or things like this. Those are all seen as positive things for most, you know, for some people. But for some other people, they're like, hey, this was like, that used to be my local store, or that used to be like the tailor or whatever. And now we have a brewery there, which I guess is cool, like breweries are great. But now we have people coming from other parts of the city that want to come drink beer in our neighborhood. And maybe I'm like, feeling excluded in my own community now. And oh, gosh, now my aunt can't, 
you know, live in her house anymore because the property taxes have gone up so much or something like this, you know? So there's this sort of dynamic between the social outcomes that are at one hand desired, <laughs> but also can be negative for other people. So certainly it's not always positive. It certainly is depending on who whose interests are we talking about, whether it's it's good or whether it's bad. Uh, but in that particular chapter in the book, whether booze is a public good, we make the argument that a, a good in the economic sense is just something that's non-excludable and non-rival. So if you're saying the the good that comes out of fermentation of place is like is placemaking, like the fermentation of the landscape creates a certain kind of place, then like by definition, it's a public good just because it's non-excludable and non-rival. But whether the good is good is another is another question. Mm-hmm. And um, oh, and I'll bring up the were, I'll bring up the kombucha please. because remember I said I was going to bring up kombucha. Yeah, this is exactly what I wanted to ask. I was having it in the back of my head. What about kombucha? <laughs> So the kombucha thing, also there's a chapter in the book that if you're interested in uh, in kombucha, you can check it out. Um, <clears throat> but what I thought was especially interesting about that chapter, about that uh, study, was that it was looking at the very um, small scale, you know, back to not, not small scale as in microbial, but small scale as in like community scale. And what is so fascinating about kombucha is that there are these scobies, right? These like mother microbial... Um, units that people share amongst themselves. And so you're literally like sharing culture <laughs> with each other and growing them in your kitchens. And then they transform into something else and you can trade them back and they're different than they used to be. And so there's this actual like culture in the sense of like microbes culture being shared, but also the whole process of making kombucha is something that is you can get commercial kombucha, like certainly, especially nowadays, like kombucha is something you could just walk into a store and get. But historically, kombucha was like a homemade product. It was a home brew. It was something you brewed at home and you might trade amongst your friends or things like this. And people would uh, like teach you how to do it, right? You know, like your friend would say, oh, you you taste my kombucha that I made. And uh, the the person says, oh, that's so delicious. How do you make that? And they say, oh, you take this jar and just put some tea in it. You know, they teach you how to do it. And then you take it to your home kitchen and you create your own microbial community that you then coexist with. And it's like this process of fermentation, like a social fermentation and culturing that goes alongside the microbial uh, fermentation and culturing. So I think kombucha is like a super fun one because it gets at the like community element <laughs> of it as well. If we talk about like a landscape change by um, agriculture or industries which produce beverages, since we are talking mostly here about about beverages, how do they differ uh, from fermented landscapes also working within that domain? Meaning, what's the difference between fermented and non-fermented non landscapes? Is there any? Yeah. So like, what's the difference between a fermented landscape and any landscape? So can any landscape be fermented is another way of saying this. Can can any landscape be seen as fermented? And I think the the answers I gave at the beginning of our talk kind of suggest, yes, that you might say there's some kind of like transformations and catalytic changes and uh, interspecies, interscalar transformations occurring within us and on us and in our living rooms and in our gardens and in our communities. But are that is that truly like a fermentation or is that just like a multi-species world? <laughs> you know, we might just accept a multi-species worldview and say, 
that that is what it is, as they say, but it's not necessarily a fermentation. So I would say that from the particular research perspective, some from some landscapes are fermented in the way that I'm talking about. Like, you know, we use those. I gave those couple of examples, Australia or South Africa or Napa or pick pick one that's or, or you know, say, pick an urban community that's had some breweries come into it or something like that. Those you might be able to specifically point out how a fermentation focused industry has shifted the production of that place, the production of materials and the production of culture and thus the production of that place. So I think for sure I can say yes to that. Now to this bigger question of like, is is this idea of using fermentation, is using fermentation in this way just some kind of a like, you know, throwaway metaphorical use of the word that then strips it of its real meaning? I would say that, like I said, my kind of expanded multi-species thinking that I've been doing in the most recent couple of years makes me think that there are these dynamic interactions happening. And so which of them are fermentations and which of them are not, I don't know that I can say just right now, but, but it's a fair, it's a fair question to ask. And, you know, I just love, I would love to think more about it with anybody who has, (laughs) who has some things to say about it because I'm still figuring it out maybe. How I see it is maybe it's also about the intention and kind of ourness, because I think that, let's say that brewery, which uh, which gentrifies that that district, you the example we've been talking about before, if the if people who stand behind that business come with the mindset, hey, we will take into account, you know, how our fermenting business, let's say, will impact this neighborhood and how we want to take part in it and how we want to be aware of our actions. I think it brings this notion, at least to me and my interpretation of it, of fermented landscape closer because you are actively showing awareness of this interconnectivity and really like a complex chains of interactions and and influences and so on. And I think that if you do not have a... Um, or it's not even if you do not have awareness, but if in your action you do not want to include it, which is even worse, I think, uh, then it's like, a, to, to me, it wouldn't be fermented landscape because it's still like uh, adds to this, you know, already super worn out, you know, idea of like, uh, okay, I am center of the universe and I'm here the most important and I will tell you what's wrong, what's right, and you better do what I want. So uh, I I would interpret it this way about the intention and kind of a particular mindset. Maybe this is where it happens. When I first was playing around with this idea back in, say, 2016 or so was when I started kind of publicly talking about this at conferences and things like that. I was working with this uh, French colleague that I was working with at the time for a different reason. And I was telling him about my research that I was doing. And he said, he said it in French. My French is terrible. So I hesitate to try to say it in French, but he said, it's like, uh, paysage fermenté versus paysage de la fermentation or something like that, like fermented landscapes or landscapes of fermentation. And he said, the way you talk about what you're doing, it sounds like you're using the phrase fermented landscapes. But to me, that suggests that the actual landscape is bubbling and burbling up with ferment versus landscapes of fermentation, which are sort of like landscapes that are, you know, influenced by or driven by or whatever, like 
that are like encapsulated by fermentation. And so he sort of was like, as I was playing around with this idea, he's like, maybe you should go more with the phrase landscapes of fermentation. But to me, I was like struck by this idea of like, but what I am talking about is like the actual landscape bubbling and burbling up with ferment, right? It's that there's this, as I mentioned before, this multi-species, multi-scalar sort of interactions going going on that are complex and uh, like you said, you know, convoluted, but dynamic. And so there's all these things going on that we don't necessarily see or understand, but they're beautiful and fascinating. And so even though my first formulation of it was a bit more like landscapes of fermentation, I feel like the concept has really blossomed and bloomed into something that could really more aptly be called fermented landscapes, which is really lovely because that's, of course, what I named the book. <laughs> so it works out. It works out great that it's like that. The production, distribution, and consumption of wine, beer, cider, and other fermented beverages alters the physical environment of landscapes and the social-cultural tissue of neighborhoods. This can be positive and problematic. Even if we don't run a winery, we, as consumers, can gain legacy on how change inevitably keeps progressing. Thank you, Colleen, for introducing us to fermenting landscapes. If you would like to know more about the show, listen to this episode again or find previous episodes, please go to fermentradio.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and more. I'm always looking forward to hearing from you at hello at fermentradio.com. Ferment Radio is produced by Super Eclectic and supported by Arts Promotion Center Finland. Thank you for listening. Keep fermenting and stay tuned for the next episode of Ferment Radio.